The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio, the leading cloud communications platform. This Wednesday and Thursday, Twilio is hosting Signal, a customer and developer conference that explores the intersection of technology, innovation, and communications. Visit signal.twilio.com and use the promo code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In each episode of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on a subject that affects how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today's episode features an interview with Trevor Schick. Trevor is head of materials at Katerra, an innovative construction startup. He has a background in supply chain management for large technology companies. Trevor told us why the construction industry needs disrupting, why buildings cost so much to build, and how Katerra is changing that. He also told us why a home should be built more like an iPhone. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Okay, so today we're talking to Trevor Schick, head of materials at Katerra. We're going to go through a little bit of your background. We're going to go through why buildings cost so much. We're going to go into how do we make building the future sustainable and then do a little lightning round action. Um, Trevor, thanks so much for hanging out. Great to be here. Okay, so I love how we're talking to the head of materials and his background is almost exclusively in technology. And I think that this is a perfect way to look at Katerra as a company where they are looking at how we can build, you know, an easy example is how can we build buildings like iPhones? So how do you do that? You bring in the top technology guys. So tell me a little bit about like your background and how you got involved in in Katerra. Absolutely. So as you alluded to, my my whole background has been in the electronics industry. I started off at Sun Microsystems, spent time at Apple, EMC, Motorola, Hewlett Packard, um, and so spent all my career there. But what I did in all those jobs was ran their supply chains. So it was always procurement, logistics, supply chain was my role at every one of those jobs. In the past 15 years of my career was doing turnarounds. So if you actually go to EMC, then to Motorola and to Hewlett Packard, they were all turnarounds where, you know, we were taking a company in multifacets, but I had the supply chain end of that turnaround. And so I did that for almost 15 years. And when Michael came to me, and I knew Michael from his terms at Flextronics, and yep. Michael Marks is CEO of Katerra, he came to me and said, hey, why don't, why don't you get out of this turnaround business and, and come in and help me grow a business? And that's really, that's really what intrigued me as we, uh, as we got this started, was rather than figuring out how you turn a business around, let's take it from you know, the ground and go, go build a company. And that, it's been a fun ride so far. So what's the big differences between semiconductor chips and building multifamily homes and, and all of that. Yeah, so it's funny. When I, I know a lot of people, obviously, mostly in the technology side of, of Silicon Valley, and everyone thought I was crazy, right? How do you go from being one of the biggest buyers from Intel, Seagate, all these companies, 
to a company that's buying building materials. And at the time we had zero revenue. So it wasn't even like I was buying anything. I was, I was selling a dream of what we were going to go do. But it's, it's interesting because what they're doing or what Katera is doing today is what we did in the electronics industry 30 years ago. Right. If you look at the construction materials business, you have manufacturers build the parts. They put those to a pro dealer who gets the parts around the world. Those go into distribution. Distribution sells them to a subcontractor. The subcontractor does their work and sells it to a general contractor. And so what happens is every step along the way, materials get marked up. And so you end up with something that's built for a pretty good cost in a factory somewhere around the world that by the time it actually gets built into the end product, which for us is multifamily, it's been marked up anywhere from five to seven times along the way. And every one of those people need to make money. So what we did in the electronics industry 30 years ago was we went straight to suppliers, right? We cut out the middlemen. We went direct to suppliers to buy the materials. We ran our own logistics to get them around the world into the right place where they needed to get into a factory. And that took a lot of that waste out of the system. That's all we're doing here. The, the fun part to me is that, you know, the first time we did this in the electronics industry, it was hard. Figuring out how to get containers around the world, figuring out how to set up these contracts in China, these contracts in Vietnam was difficult because you were doing it for the first time. For us, and especially guys like me who have been doing business around the world their whole careers, it's actually pretty easy. Now, it's a different set of suppliers. It's a different set of people. But the concept's very similar, right? We're going direct to a supplier. We're getting an engagement directly with them. We're working on their quality. We're working on their costs, their efficiencies. And then we're managing the supply chain ourselves. And so it's, it's a different set of products and a different set of people, but a very similar business model we're setting up right now. But I think it goes kind of beyond just figuring out all like the way that you said sounds easy, but I think it goes beyond just finding the suppliers for Katera, obviously, in that you want to control the entire end-to-end chain. So you want to be able to have a factory that creates, you know, CLT or mass timber. You want to have factories that are doing all of these things so that you can control the end-to-end costs. And ultimately, like all of those, you know, savings, for lack of a better term, are passed on to the end customer, right? Yeah. So what I'd say, and so I was talking directly, this the materials piece of the, the business, which materials in a multifamily apartment is about 45% of the cost, right? Wow. So what I just talked about actually does have a pretty big impact because of the amount of materials into the building. But to your point, I would, I would go back again to an electronics analogy. When you build a laptop or a phone or anything in the electronics industry, it's a pretty similar equation. 80% of your cost is designed in. So the way you design that laptop, the way you put the components in there, who you buy from, 80% of that's decided what we call it an R&D if you were in, a, uh, in the electronics industry. Well, in this industry, it's your architecture and engineering teams, right? And so whether it's 80% or 70%, I don't know exactly where it is for building industry, but it's the same idea. You have to design it right up front. And so, you know, what we do is we have a catalog of our materials. These are the people that we've, you know, gone out, contracted with. We have multiple levels because there's people in North Dakota want a different product than downtown New York City. But you can bucket that into a set of levels, and we have a catalog that can do it. And then our architects and engineers use that catalog to pull their materials in. The other piece to it on the design side is then the labor perspective, right? Anyone in this room can pick up the newspaper and read probably an article about the labor problems in the U.S. specific to the construction industry. There's not enough labor, and everyone points to there's not enough people to do the labor. I actually have a different view on that. I actually think we have an efficiency problem, not a labor problem. We went out when Katera started and looked at the model and said, and we went out with industrial engineers and looked at a job site. You're about 43% efficient on a job site. 
So you, the, your labor is there all day. 43% of that time you're getting value-add work. 57% of the time you're not. And by the way, if you go to the second floor, that gets worse. And the third floor, it gets worse because every time they need something, they got to go down multiple staircases. If we can get that efficiency in labor to 60%, 70%, it changes that dynamic. That labor problem I used to have starts going away. And so that's what we've done with the factories. We've looked at a job site and said, if I can take all of those components and what's possible to do in a factory, do it back in a factory, I can then solve my labor in the field. Factory labor is a lot easier to find. People like working inside a factory where you have air conditioning, you have a better working environment than working outside when you're in the elements. And so part of the overall process is design it right up front, use your architecture and engineering to design it to the, the optimal cost model, set up a material supply chain that goes and gets the lowest cost for all those materials you possibly can, and then do all of the pre-build you possibly can in the factory, right? And build out those components so that the amount of labor finally on the job site is lower and you're a lot faster. And so to your point, it is much bigger than materials. You gotta bring all those pieces together to really make it successful. So let's take a step and go kind of like way back in, in time a little bit. And I know none of us were around a thousand years ago, <laughs> but back in the day, humans built houses where they live with whatever was around them, mud sticks, ice, rocks, whatever it was that was around them. We go back, then we kind of like create this idea of, well, if we could build buildings that were big enough that had the materials that were strong enough to hold you know, multiple stories, multiple levels, and like tons of people could live in them. And then, so we get to the point about a hundred years ago where we're looking at wood and steel and concrete and these type of materials that are extremely sturdy, that can build skyscrapers, that can build these enormous buildings. But something kind of got lost along the way, which was building concrete might not be great. It might not be great for our environment. It might not be great to live in. And there's this other substance that we used to use called wood, which actually might be much better. Could you talk about that? I think you're right, right? And I'd say two things. You know, we, we brought the industry to a certain point, and we used to have a great photo that had a building being built in 1873 and one being built today. And the guy, it looked the exact same, right? You had people out on the site nailing wood together, and that really hasn't changed over the years. I'd argue the same with concrete, right? There's been some improvements there. They're trying to get better materials, lighter weight materials. But at the end of the day, they're very similar today than, than what they used to be. And that, that is really part of the premise of Katera, right, which is there's very little innovation that happens in this industry. And I would argue it's because there's not a big incentive for people to go innovate in the industry. The way I look at it is, you know, you think of the, the whole value chain. You start with a developer who really is the one that brings the money to the table and the land to the table. They make a lot of money, right? And so they, as long as they can make their numbers and they can de-risk it, things look good to them. Everyone after that becomes a cost plus model, right? You literally have a guy that sells materials to the subcontractor. He marks up those materials. He then gets to labor and he marks up the labor. That gets passed to a general contractor who then marks up all his subcontractors and hands that up to the developer, right? And so for those people down below the developer, if they actually get more efficient, if they get better material costs or drive down labor, the math is their revenue goes down and their profit goes down, right? And so the incentive program of to change in this industry has stalled many years ago. And so now you got to look and say, how do you switch that paradigm? You know, for Katera, that came in the fact of we had a lead customer who said, hey, we know how the electronics industry has done this. We want to go do something similar. So how do we then tap into that? And that developer allowed us to set up 
the whole supply chain that we talked about. And so with that, we look at it very differently. We give a guaranteed price. And every time I give that, if I can save more money, I get the benefit of it. Right. I also de-risk it for the developer and the, the general or the developer, because if I don't do as well as I thought, I don't pass that on to them. Right. So you can solve the problem, but you can also set up the incentive program. So my developer has certainty on the risk. There's no he's not going to lose downside on the cost side of things. And I have certainty that if I make more and I can drive my cost down, I get the benefit of that. That then allows our team to wake up every single morning and think about how do I go drive cost out of it? How do I go drive time out of this? But by the way, let's do that and give them a better building, a better product, and also do it in a more sustainable way. So to come back to your sustainability side of things, right, we've made a very big bet on cross-laminated timber. You know, again, if you look at concrete and steel, that has been over six stories in the U.S., that's the way you're building buildings. Fire code dictates that, and you can't use wood above that. There's a technology out there today called cross-laminated timber, heavily used in Europe, starting to see some buildings up in Canada and now starting in the U.S., but it's a wood product. And if you think about wood, it, it actually sequesters CO2, right? It's a very different model than steel and concrete, which are some of the worst CO2 emitters in the world. This one sequesters CO2. And so when you build a building from it and you have to get the wood in a sustainable way, you can actually get a very good product together from a sustainability perspective. But we also believe you can do it at a better cost and you can build it faster than you've done in the past. You start putting those pieces together and you really bring a different dynamic to the table. What I think is so fascinating about that, which I think is really just the most common sense business, like fundamentals 101, right? If you align incentives, everybody wins. If a project is early and there's no benefit to anyone for it being early, then it's not going to be early. If you know you decrease the amount of materials and it doesn't, and the price doesn't go down, it's not going to be... I don't know how familiar you are with like marketing agencies, but it's the same sort of thing, right? If we spend a million dollars and you get a 10% markup, then it's like you need to spend all of your budget in order to get the markup, right? And I think that that's something, I mean, like when we talk about like disruption in general, like those those little percentages, they aren't incremental, they're exponential differences. And they're the differences between taking an entire market by storm with, you know, hey, we're 10% at every single phase of this operation, which makes it just far more efficient. Yeah. The one other thing I'd say, and it's it's what was very interesting to me coming into the the construction industry is everything's a one-off, right? And so we, we call that a prototype in the industry I've been from. When you build something once and then don't do it again, it was a prototype and you decided not to continue it. In this, this model, in, the, in this industry, people look at it and they build, they architect a building, they engineer that building, they build that building, and then they're done. And they go start another building and they go through that exact same process. It's a waste of time on resources, right? Once you've designed a one-bedroom, two-bedroom, three-bedroom apartment, once you understand the municipality code and how many units you can fit per acre and, and bring those pieces together, there is no reason you can't put an algorithm in place that really designs that building for them, right? And so not only can we save money on the back end because we know how to go do that, you know, that we talked about, but half of the time to get a building built actually takes place up front. The amount of time it takes to architect it, engineering, get permits, get entitlements. And so we not only look at the back end and say, hey, we can build it faster and better, but up front, how do we take the time out of that? Because today, in today's world, it takes 30 to 36 months to build a multifamily apartment. So think about that. The guy pays for the land. He's got his money now on the table, and it takes him almost three years to get that product before he can start 
charging rent or if it's a hotel, get, get you know the room rates for it. If I take a year off of that, it de-risks his plan as well as he gets to value faster. So we talk about saving him money, but I tell you that the real way they save money is when you can take time out of that overall program. And these guys, you know, they realize that. Now, if you can design a building by computer, right, you can look and say, I know the code. I know what the weather patterns are. So I know what kind of heating and cooling systems you need. I know how many schools are in the area. So that'll dictate how many one, two, three bedrooms apartments are going to be needed. Get it to a point where you're designing a building in days, not months. And then you can take that set of prints to the municipality right away to start talking about it. That's what people don't do. But I go back to an industry in electronics. That's all we did, right? I go to automotive. That's exactly how they do it. Get a basic design so people can have the, call it the, the infrastructure in place, and then give them the options around it. I mean, every building can't look the same and we don't want them to. But just give them some options. Don't let them redesign the building every time. You do that and you get all the efficiencies that come along with it. But if you think about the human aspects of that, it is, hey, there was just a fire you know, in Northern California where we lost 3,000 homes. All of those people need their homes rebuilt. All of the multifamily homes need to be rebuilt. If you're talking about 36 months minimum, it's like think of how much, you know, your kid's not going to be settled in their school. They're not going to be as close to, you're not going to be as close to work. They're not going to be as close to to the soccer fields or whatever it is. Like there's a human element to this that I think sometimes is lost in like why this is so important. The most important things that we do is where we work, where we live, you know, where we go to school, all of the buildings around us, having them built faster when there's a disaster is something that, again, has exponential upside. Yeah. And I, I, would, so I agree on the disaster side. It's big. But even think we're, you know, we're in the Bay Area. There is not enough housing in the Bay Area. And, and so we, we talk about this to people. And, and so let's say somebody finally gets permitting to put in a multifamily that will help ease that. That'll bring down traffic. That'll allow people to travel less to the office. All the benefits we know come along with that. You're still three years away from it. Right. And so how do we just, you know, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's emergency housing or, or to be honest, even market rate housing in most areas, we have a critical problem we need to solve, which is how do we get those units going? And the biggest problem right now is even once you finally get the go ahead, somebody makes the deal, it takes too long to go build it. And we're just we are aggressively going after that in every aspect of it to say, get it done faster. So and I want to talk about a little bit of the red tape stuff. But before we do that, could you just break down really quick, like simply like why does a building cost so much in terms of like whether it's percentages or just a a new way to look at this from labor, materials, land, architecture, time, just like a quick model that that our listeners could use to think about like why this stuff costs so much to create. Yeah. So, I mean, if you take the simple math, right, you break it down into labor and materials, right, for a building. 45% is materials, 55% is labor. Be a little bit building dependent, but let's start with that as a basis. You know, what's, what's interesting on the material side, so let's start there. It's my background, so I like it. Everybody buys for one building at a time, right? So I go back to it. Every building's a one-off. So when a contractor decides he's going to build a building, he goes out and he secures the materials for that building. He buys the lumber for that building. He buys the windows for that building. He doesn't go out and say, over the whole year, I'm going to build 50 of these complexes. That means I'm going to need windows for 50 buildings. I'm going to need lumber. I mean, all these pieces and go back and get a price for that. So that's one of the big places Katerra comes in, which is let's go back and aggregate all our demand for a year and stop talking about one building at a time, but talk about scale, right? And we are about scale. And so so if you go into the materials piece, a lot of it comes from it's this one-off buy is one of the problems. The second problem is the markups. 
So again, we talked about it earlier. You have a factory build it, gets handed in distribution, handed to a subcontractor, handed to a contractor, and finally to a developer. Every one of those is marked up along the way. And so problem number two with materials. The third thing I'd say in materials is people don't optimize the way you do the design. So I'll give you a great example. Right when I started at Katera, I didn't know much about the, the industry, and I went out and started meeting suppliers. And I went to a Windows factory. One of the better guys, very well known, great, one of the very good companies in Windows. There is glass everywhere. And I asked them, I said, how much glass is wasted at the end of the day? And they told me 12 to 15%. So think about this from a sustainability standpoint, a cost standpoint, so many different factors, what that means, because it gets thrown away at the end of the day. Vinyl is the other piece in there. 10 to 12% of their vinyl gets thrown away every day. That's what a window's made of, vinyl and, and glass, and then you throw a little you know, latch on there. But most of the cost is in those two things. And so you ask them why. And there's two reasons. One is they would tell you that when an architect designs a window into a building, they don't think about what's the pane of glass size, right? And how do I optimize the number of windows I can cut out of a pane of glass, right? I came from the cell phone business. I worked at Motorola for a few years. If you didn't use 99% of that glass that's in the front of your cell phone, you probably wouldn't be there the next day. That is a big piece of cost. You optimize it. Same with the vinyl, right? How do you go drive that? So that's part of the problem. So the first thing I did was dragged our architects down there. And I said, you guys need to understand what the size of a panel of glass is. And they started to say, okay, now if we design windows, we're going to design to the panel of glass so we can optimize that. So that's one. The other is, again, you think of the model, the subcontractors are buying the materials. And so you have a subcontractor who probably doesn't have great cash flow, right? They're doing one building at a time. They got to pay their, their bills, everything else. It's unpredictable. It's unpredictable for them. And they don't know exactly if something's going to slip in the project, right? And so what do they do? They give a PO to the window supplier two weeks before. I know six months before when I need those windows. I know right nine months before when I need those windows. But the risk to the subcon is he places the PO, the windows get done, and the project slipped. And now he's got to pay for the windows, and he doesn't get any revenue back, and he's not getting profit back. And so they don't give him this long window. If you could give them a view and then potentially have to sit on a little bit of inventory for a while, you can go optimize this. Right? It's one of the things Katera has. We have a very strong balance sheet. So if I have to order my windows and I plan them two weeks and end up being three weeks, I can still pay my payroll. You get into a lot of these subcontractors and they would struggle there. And so you end up a sub-optimized model because it's so disaggregated, where that guy who's kind of the, the bottom of the value chain is the guy that's buying your materials. Go back to electronics, it's the exact opposite, right? When you buy memory and processors, Apple is as a company buying them, HP is a company buying them, and then we're handing them to the guys to put it together. So you got to switch that materials piece of it. So. The second is then really the labor piece, right? And this is where costs have really been escalating in the U.S., especially in metropolitan areas. So if you think of the Bay Area, you know, most of the people who do the work can't afford to live in the Bay Area anymore. And you could go to Seattle, you can go to L.A. I mean, it's not just specific here, but it's probably seen some of the worst here. So now these people, you know, they, they want to do the work, but they have to travel in longer, right? And so the costs continue to go up on the labor side. Our view is very simple. If we can take 60 to 70% of that labor off of a job site and move it into a factory, you now then take that from being a high cost field labor into you know factory labor, which is a different cost profile. And it's also a fixed number. You know very well how many people you need in the factory to go build that. It's very process driven. And so when you look at this other 55% of cost, there's two ways to optimize it. One is making sure you move as much of that back into the factory as possible. But then the second piece is on the job site, make it easier to go do the installs, right? So for us, when a wall panel comes in, you know, we bring them in on a truck, we put that into place. 
there should be zero movement after moving it once, right? You bring it in, you place it, and you're done. And a normal construction site, you'd bring in your lumber, you'd put it at the front of the, the lot. They'd move that lumber over to assemble a wall panel. They'd move that wall panel over to a spot to stand it up and put it into place. It's all about minimizing the movement. And, and we think about that as the job site is a factory. Treat that optimization like a factory and always look at how many times does something need to get touched. If somebody's installing a wall panel and takes them longer than the other guys installing the wall panels, it's a training problem. Go work with them on why it's not getting installed. If it, wall panel number four takes everyone longer than the rest of the wall panels to put in place, then to be honest, it's an engineering problem. So drive it back into engineering and say, we need to figure out why this wall panel is taking longer to put in. You got to treat it like a factory. You just attack those efficiencies every single day. If you don't, it'll never get better. So back in World War II, we were putting out a jet every day on the factory floor, right? That was whatever, 80 years ago. What is like what was the limiting factor that people couldn't see that this stuff was common sense? Like was it just that construction and architecture and all these different pieces are so disparate and so spread out and have such like different, you know, each city is different, each building code and all these different things that nobody kind of had an oversight of, hey, how could we do all of these different things? Or do you think it's just change is tough? I think it's a little bit of both, right? So I do think one of the things about this industry is it's very risk adverse, right? So a lot of this is how do you move risk around between different parties? And so because of that, you end up with you know, an architect that probably over-designs their work so that there's no risk on them. They hand that to an engineer who makes sure they they over-design on the engineering side, and then down to a subcontractor who probably does, you know, a little bit of over-engineering himself on the job site. And it happens because, again, they're a disaggregated group, right? All of them is making sure that they're taking the risk off of themselves. That has happened, and it's just over the past 70 years, pick your number, right? You haven't had a player come in that says, I'm going to take on all those pieces. Because until you take them on and you start, you know, making your architect understand the impact of the job site, you'll never get to a point where they're going to start designing that cost out. All they're going to do is look at how do they make sure that they design a beautiful building, which we want them to do as well, but they aren't going to think about the downstream impacts to the other parties. So let's let's talk about that for a second, because I think you have a fascinating model of like having a consortium and having different architects that you bring in. Yeah. Um, just talk about like how you view architects and having them in different cities and having them look at different things, because I think that that's a really novel approach to look at this that I'd, I'd never really seen before. And it's something that I think people, I think one of the knee-jerk reactions to a lot of this stuff would be like, well, how can we make sure things are unique? And how can we make sure that things are beautiful and different? And the way that I think you've approached it is really interesting. Yeah. So we, we've gone from day one saying our model is better, faster, cheaper, right? And we, we talk about it very explicitly that better is the first word for a reason. Our goal is not to go out and build smaller, crappier apartments just because we got to hit a cost target right? That is not what we want to do. And it's not what we set out to do. What we want to do is be able to bring beautiful buildings to people. And then once we do that, do them better and smarter. So we have, we ramped up our, our own internal team. Craig Curtis will be on some of this as well, came on board and got that started for us. We ramped that up to almost a hundred architects and designers on the West coast. Over the past quarter, we've acquired two more architecture firms. 
Lord Ekin Sargent out of Atlanta, who has six offices all over the East Coast. And then Michael Green, who's one of the leading architects in cross-laminated timber up in, uh, up in Vancouver. And so, you know, what, what our view on this is, is yes, we do want to be bringing the people that for the different areas of the U.S. are able to design the buildings right bring them in so they're not the same buildings. We're not building anything lower from a uh, quality perspective. But at the end of the day, also thinking about the repetitiveness of it. The things that are inside of the wall that nobody sees, make that the exact same, right? Make it so that your plumbing, your electrical, those things that people don't have a touch to are all the same and manufacturable. And then on the aesthetics piece, the windows, the roofs, the, you know, the, the wrap around the building, give them some variations there that make them very distinguished and every building you know, gets its own uniqueness. And that's really where the, the design consortium started. We brought on four of the leading firms. We just added a fifth that really work with us to look at what we're building and give us feedback to make sure that what we're doing, they see as also being buildings that are gonna last, right? And the design is gonna last out there. And that's, that's really been the goal for us since the beginning. Then once we get that piece done and then look at all those things that people don't see and go drive the cost out and set it up into a model we can build much faster. So I think one of the comparisons that obviously gets brought a lot is to Tesla. So I've been to the Tesla factory. I've seen, you know, all of the different folks. I know a bunch of folks that work there. And I think that, you know, Tesla brought kind of an, an edge and a holistic look at like redesigning the idea of like, it looks like a car, but it's actually something totally different. I kind of feel like there's something similar to that with Katera as well, where it's like, yes, it looks to be a building that is the same or, you know, a beautiful building that building is a building, I think is what a lot of people, especially to the, to the user, right? To the person who lives there or works there or whatever it is, they only see what 20% of what it actually is. But I think that that extra 20% is what makes all the difference to the people who are living there. Whereas the other 80% is all of kind of like where the genius is done to bring, to bring the rest of that to, to the fold. Yeah. So that's, I mean, we, we think about a chassis, right? So we have a chassis that kind of holds all the guts of the building and that's, it's expensive stuff, but nobody ever sees it. They don't really care what it looks like as long as it works, right? They need their heating, they need their electrical water, all those things to work flawlessly. But what we try to do then is actually when we work with our development partners, we, we try to push them to actually give them a better product, right? So simple examples, cabinets. We don't sell non-soft close cabinets, right? So for anybody who has a cabinet and you close it, it kind of slams. Usually lower end apartments would have those. Higher end homes will have soft close, so it kind of closes nicely. We only do soft close now. That's great. I didn't know that. Well, and part of the reason, though, is to do soft close from a pure cost perspective is very minimal, Right? It might cost me an extra 20 or $30 to put all my hinges at soft close. The problem is when you go through kind of the marketing side of this, it actually gets much more expensive and it's marketed as a high-end product. And so we look at things like that and say, just put it into every single building because that's something that I literally take people through a showroom. Everyone opens and closes a cabinet, guaranteed. And when they soft close it, you see a little smile go on their face, right? They see the value in that. They don't care behind the walls how I plumb the, uh, you know, the plumbing to go behind the wall where they don't see it. So, so give them those kind of things. Look at another great example is windows, right? Move it to a point where they have, you know, auto-close blinds. It's really not that expensive. But, boy, it gives them a good feel in there. And then all the finish, we've taken the level one out of our showrooms. So we don't say here's the lowest end product. We see here's a level two, a level three, and a level four. 
and go with those. We'll save you the money on the backside, back in the walls and that, that other 80%. But for the what people look and feel, give them something really uh, that's a better product than they normally get. And that's, that's what we like to do. Quickly on the Tesla comment, our, our view and where a lot of that comes from is more up on the design side as well, right? We want people to literally be able to go in and when they're designing their building, be on a website. They come up, they build what they want to build, it gives them a price. So you're a developer, you can literally look and then you say, I want to put a nicer cabinet in here. Go switch the cabinet and get a real-time feedback on what that cost is. You want to switch the way the finishes are, right? The, the bathroom finishes. Real-time give them that feedback. So, you know, you're able to really work on the building and do it. And in today's model, you know, you have a person that looks at one, they say, hey, that's more than I wanted to pay, right? For a whole building complex, it's $30 million. They go in and they say, what if we did these four things? In today's model, what happens is then they take that back to the architect. The architect designs it in. They give it to a general contractor. He goes to his subcontractors. Subcontractors go to his material providers. And weeks later, they come back and say, here's what your cost is. You save the time by taking all that out, and you can make real-time decisions. That's where a lot of the you know, Tesla comparisons and others, because now you're allowing people to really sit there and, and be able to look at options, see what the cost differences are, and when they're done, hit a button and say, I want this building. That changes the way this happens. Are you guys working on AR, VR, ways to look at that sort of stuff? Yeah, we have some already where, you know, if you were at uh, IBS, the International Builder Show last year, we had the goggles where you can go into an apartment, you can walk through it, you can tap on the cabinets, update them. I mean, it's, I'd call that the bells and whistles. You know, for us, the VR piece is more on how do you train people in the factory, right? So that they can come in and literally the day they get to the factory, put on their goggles and they see the work instructions. Take it on to the job site where a guy can really be using VR goggles and understand exactly how to put two wall panels together. So we're looking at a lot of technology on that front, but I'd say it's more to get really the work done. And then we'll get the stuff for the developers as well, because they like that. Let's move into some of the sustainability stuff. This is really a hugely important thing for our world. And it's something that like we cannot have enough smart people working on. And it's awesome that Katera is working on this. I've seen some of the stuff that you're doing with sustainability around the KTES and having a self-sustaining grid on site. The result for the end user is no utility bill, potentially. I mean, you're talking about, again, that is an exponentially important thing for the future. Could you talk a little bit about KTES and why you think that is a big deal and those type of like sustainable things are, are important? Yeah, so KTS, which for us is Katera Energy Systems, that's an initiative we kicked off, and that probably leads back to our technology backgrounds. This is kind of a, a sweet spot for it. But it's interesting when you look at that, because in multifamily, very few people use solar. And the reason they don't use solar is because the benefit goes to the person renting the apartment. It's a cost to the developer. And what the developers found is most of the time that people rent it won't pay more rent for solar because they can't, they can't make that balance in their, in their heads. And so the developer pays to put solar in. If your renter doesn't value it, then you don't get the increased rent. So it actually, that's a, that's a bad thing for a developer to do, right? They, they put cost in that's not getting valued. So for us, it's all about how do you get solar back into that building at a cost that makes sense for the developer. And it's, it's very interesting when you start peeling this one back because for us, KTS is you have your standard grid electricity, you have solar, and then you have battery. And you use those three and you could put wind in there, you could put geothermal in there, but start with those three as kind of the simple model. And now you start looking at it and saying, one, you get solar into the building. If you also think about a building, you have to put in all the infrastructure to meet the requirements of that building for about a three hour window 
which is when everyone gets home from work at the end of the day, right? So every day that the electric peaks because people are getting home. If you can shave off that peak, then you don't need as much infrastructure coming into the complex. So you can actually reduce cost on the infrastructure side and then use some of that to offset the cost of solar and the cost of batteries. Once you then get that equation working, you know, if you can start then bringing DC power into the building, so suddenly you're able to go into your lighting, it's lower cost to put in DC lighting and it's lower to build the building that way. You can then start saving costs off for the developer in other ways because you're actually able to bring the power in. Now think about what this does for the sustainability side of things, right? You can then get an algorithm going that looks and obviously uses solar to fill your batteries or to run the house. If it looks and knows that it's going to be cloudy for the next four days and it won't get enough solar, then go to the grid, but go to the grid at two in the morning when the electrical cost is lower and it's not being overused and then bring your batteries to full charge, right? And you can start figuring that out. No, by the way, if one of your buildings has a lot of people that aren't there often, start looking at that, right? And for the whole complex, understand, you know, who's using the most. And now you can start using batteries from other buildings if you know you can support it. It's just an algorithm, right? I mean, I hate to oversimplify it, but you got to get the technology in place where it can start balancing those loads and saying, what's the lowest cost way to provide electricity to the that complex? But at the same time, you're bringing in power and you're bringing in solar, which takes down the requirements of the energy that comes into it. So big effort for us, but we think it's works well in multifamily. You go to hospitality, you go to senior living, you go to student housing. Well, suddenly now you have a developer who not only owns the capital expense side, but also does the operating expense side. So for them, it's even a better value proposition because they really get both benefits of going and doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think it does make sense and it is common sense to say like it's an algorithm, but like that's what Nest is. That's what any of these things are. It's just a technology that's reading the weather is not it's not rocket science, right? Exactly. Every single person's phone does that. And it is not, it's not super complex technology. What is complex is forcing it into the process. And that's what I think is so fascinating. It's like, it's a forcing function to keep people sustainable by it helping the bottom line. And I think that that is such an, like an important part of the equation is when sustainable is actually the more, and not just because of like you know, tax write-offs or things like that, when it's actually a more sustainable, profitable way of building, then you have much more success. And and what I'd say is, is the reason, so again, whenever something makes sense, you say, why hasn't it been done already, right? Which would be kind of the first question on this. And really the problem has been is that you have so many different groups you got to kind of pull together to really get the value equation out, right? Because normally you'd have a subcontractor that's solar. All he cares about is the solar piece. You'd have another one that does lighting. All that one cares about is the lighting. You got to think about it from a full building, right? How do I bring the value at the full building level? And when you own the architecture, you own the engineering, and you own the build of the product, you can, you're in a unique ability to bring all those pieces together and deliver a product that you're not paying for getting all the, the solar and the battery in there, but you're getting a better operating expense on the back end. And that's why, I mean, we've gone after this. It's something that we don't think others can do unless you own the whole value chain. Are you ready for the lightning round? Can't wait. Got the the lightning round. We're just going to ask a few questions that may have some stuff to do about buildings, may not. (laughs) First one. Yeah. What app on your phone is the most fun? The most fun? Strava. Ooh, what's that? 
Strava is for uh, bikers and runners. And so I get to track all my friends and we're a very competitive group. So it's an app that allows you to see whether they're beating you. And now my kids are big runners. So it allows me to keep track of whether they're getting better than I am or not. Oh, no kidding. That's great. Fantastic. App. Oh, so and there's like network effects because all the different people you are get on all it. you pulled together. Yeah, it's, uh, that's uh, great. Does it no auto secrets. post to like Facebook or stuff like that? I hope not because it, I don't need it to be that widely known. There's an app that just like auto auto posts to Facebook and I see the notifications all the time like please don't ever <laughs> if if that's on my push notifications just uh, turn that one off yeah right. okay what do you think makes a great city makes a great city you know for me it's it's the movement piece right you know I think there's still a struggle of you know how do you get communities so they have everything necessary within the community that, you know, you're not having to travel all over to do it. And so when you, you know, there's simple things and there's obviously companies that aren't here working at it where when you look at a yoga studio, right, a yoga studio is used mainly during the day. And then at night, it's not used. And so you have these spaces within the city that are empty. You know, why don't you turn that into a restaurant? Why don't you find a second use for that? Which is in that area of the city, you suddenly can do a lot of different things, right? And so, you know, we're still caught up in the philosophy that everything has one use and that's kind of the end of it. I think as you look at kind of, you know, where the city needs to go is you take these spaces that can have multiple uses depending on what needs to happen in them. And you really change the way that you think about doing that design. So uh, to me, it's, it's the movement and allowing people not to have to spend half their time getting to the destination, but bringing the destination to them. I love that. I think about that all the time. I think about that every single retail store I go into, every single one, I'm like, this could be a bar at night. Okay. This could be like all those small, like a little hardware shop or whatever it is, those small small businesses. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a co-working space. If you live in San Francisco or the Bay Area and you pay $400, $500 for a co-working space every month, if you were a small like mom and pop shop, you could have three guests, three set up three tables and boom, good to go. 1500 bucks a month that you can help shave off the rent. Okay. What is your favorite city and why? My favorite city, Tokyo. Why is a good question. I just, you know, there's there's so many different areas of Tokyo. You feel like you're in 15 different cities, even though you're you're not leaving kind of a metropolitan area. And I've just spent a lot of time there with my career and just come to love it. Favorite one-day getaway here in the Bay Area? Wow. Favorite one-day Tahoe. I'm a skier, so I must admit getting up to Tahoe skiing is kind of the top of my list. You like Kirkwood? You want to get I'm in the a Kirkwood bowl? guy. You actually nailed uh, nailed it with that one. Closest one to here and uh, the highest peak going. So it's uh, it's where I go. What's your favorite podcast that you're listening to right now? This is awful to say because we're doing a podcast. I don't listen to too many podcasts. That's so all right. That's I, perfectly uh, fine. I don't think I, I have too many that I listen to religiously. So Definitely the future is going to be number one. I'll on be on this one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. What book have you read recently that has changed your view on something? Wow, that's a good one. So this one's a little bit funny, but I was reading it with my son. I'm trying to trying to remember the name of it. It was a couple months ago. But it was it was all about the Holocaust. And it was interesting, and I will come up with the name, but it's slipping me right now. But it was this interesting, uh, you know, it was a person's account of what really happened. And it was, uh, you know, my son's 14 years old, so it was two phases for me, which is one, you hear a 14-year-old and how they think about what happened because they can't fathom kind of what happened. And, you know, for me, it kind of gave some different views on what, what certain people saw. So, What is your favorite, like, show or piece of content or whether it's like a web series or anything like that, favorite show that you're watching right now? 
All right, so this is going to sound awful, but diners, drive-ins, and dives. I'm a, I'm a cook that never happened, and so one of my favorite ones to watch and drives my wife crazy. But I must admit, I, uh, that's my steal-away thing when I go watch a TV show is, is that for some reason. The guy's a Bay Area, Bay Area dude. So. I, I met him a few years ago, so really? but, uh, maybe that's part of what got me watching in the first place. Okay, anything that we missed that you want to share or anything for the audience? You know, the only thing I'd say, we... Um, we're a young company, right? As Katera, we started three years ago, kind of off on this journey to get things going. Obviously, and I, I tell people all the time, when I came here and I mentioned it earlier, we were 55 people. We had zero revenue and we had what we thought was a great idea. You know, for me, this was leaving a job running the global supply chain of Hewlett Packard, large employees buying a lot of materials. And when I told my wife, she thought it was the midlife crisis and tried to convince me to just buy a car or a motorcycle or something and get beyond it. But, you know, it's been quite quite a journey for three years and, and on multiple facets. One is, you know, really going after the, the sustainability side of it. What can we go do actually to to build these things faster, to do it in a smarter way. I mean, we talked about some of the materials and the waste you see. A lot of people don't think about sustainability that way, but I will tell you on a, on a job site standardly built with wood, so framed wood, it's a 15% throwaway of the wood at the end of the day, right? So 15% of those trees it's are harvested, crazy. go into a dumpster and taken. Then you pay a guy to move the dumpsters to the, you know, the yard, and then it goes to waste in the yard. Right. So when you start thinking about, you know, windows, the waste, wood, the waste, drywall, all these things that are bad products to throw away. And a lot of them are, you know, tough because you're cutting down trees. You don't need to cut it on to do it. It really adds up to say we're actually doing a really good thing. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we're profitable company. You know, we're a company that's here to make profit. And so we got to we got to go do that. But when you can do that and, you know, cut down on this waste that just isn't. You know, it's useless out there right now. And then deliver a better product. There's there's very few times in my career that I've been able to sit back and and kind of feel pretty good that you're hitting on all three of those vectors. And, you know, people have heard me say, you know, most people say you can be better, you can be faster, you can be cheaper. But there's no way to be all three of those things. And, and most people say you have to pick two. I actually think in the industry and where this industry is at right now, you don't. You can actually give a better product. You can do it faster and cheaper. And I think the runway for that's a long time. Some point we'll have a different conversation, whether that's 10 years or 15 years down the road. I don't know. But, it, you know, right now, that's, that's what's making this fun. We're doing something that's, that at the end of the day is good for the world. We're doing something that we can actually add a lot of value to our customer. When you add both of those things together, it's a pretty cool thing to go do. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're just such huge, huge fans of Katera here at The Mission. You cannot legislate exponential impact. It has to be human beings building companies that have exponential impact. You cannot have incremental impact that saves the world from catastrophe. Like you just can't. And I think that that's something that people lose with short-sightedness, with like you can't see the waste that goes on around you every single second of every day. But certain people saw the waste and were like, that needs to change. And then you need to figure out new ways to innovate, to combine. I mean, Katera is a technology company. And, you know, how do you just, you know, and disrupt is definitely, you know, an overused word, but like the technology of combining all those different things was a better, faster, better, faster, cheaper, cheaper, right? Like that's, you can do all those things if you're leveraging technology. The one other thing that I wanted you to talk about before we go really quick is the mass timber facility that you're building that I think is going to be operational sometime next year. Just could you share like a little bit on this? And it's just so fascinating to me. Yeah, so it's cross-laminated timber is kind of the the term. 
And, you know, right now, heavily used in other parts of the world, very little use in the U.S., very little use in Canada, so-called North America. The factory we're building up there, it's a 200,000-plus square foot facility dedicated to mass timber. You know, large investment for us, but I would say we went all in. You know, these numbers won't mean a lot, but I'll frame them up. It can do about 150,000 cubic meters of CLT, which will make it by far the biggest one in North America and rivals anyone over in Europe. And the view on it is the only way to be profitable in this type of business is you got to have scale. And so um, I always joke with people, we don't dip our toe in the water to see if it feels good. We've gone all in on cross-laminate timber. And what, what's that mean is, again, in the U.S., from a wood perspective, you can only go up to six floors. And that's having to build over concrete. Most of code gets you to four floors. And then there's a fire code that says you can't go higher. Sometimes you can do two levels of concrete and then do wood above it. But, but call it six floors is where you max out. The new International Building Code for that'll come into place in 2020 will allow cross-laminate timber to be used up to 12 floors, I believe. And so now what historically was concrete and steel, once you got above that six stories, you can now do mid-rise buildings made out of wood. You know, again, if wood is harvested in a sustainable way, it truly is a crop. It just takes a long time to grow. But, you know, work with partners who sustainably harvest the wood, make it into CLT that sequesters CO2, and then build buildings that I'd say are just much nicer than what concrete and steel is. We, we, we talk to people about, imagine walking into your room and your ceiling is exposed wood, right? That gives a warmer feel. It gives a feel that's a lot nicer than concrete. It also has got better thermal characteristics, so you don't need as much insulation around it. So again, when you think about it from a sustainability perspective, you have this wood in there, which is sequestering CO2, and you're not having to put as much insulation and other materials around it from a, a heating and cooling perspective. It just has a lot of very good traits that it can bring to the table. And so we start to build with it. Boy, in July, our first building will go up. We'll, we'll buy our CLT from somebody else for the first bit. But in Q1 of next year, we'll, we'll ramp up the factory and uh, we'll be producing our own CLT and we're going to go drive it hard across the market. It's amazing. I love it. That's so cool. And it, you just, if you've ever been in a cabin in Tahoe that's made of wood and you're like, gosh, I could just spend every day here. That's right. It's like that future can be a reality. That's it. We're looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Future of Cities. And thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.